You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 328 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. It feels weird to be saying that. Uh, my name is Michael Farmer. I'm your host for today. I haven't been on this show in more than a year, I think, probably 14, 15 months, but I'm glad to be back, and I'll talk about where I've been in just a moment. I am joined by my old friends, Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs. Nathan, you have been on this podcast in the last 15 months. Yes, indeed. I assembled a couple of uh, ad hoc crews, and uh, you know, we did a bit of marauding uh, through the uh, intellectual <laughs> space of the internet, and had some fun doing it. So, uh, I do want to thank uh, Dan and Blake, and I feel like there were other people who I recorded with, but I, I didn't write them down before we start record started recording. Well, I'm sure they feel uh, they they feel your love, nevertheless. <laughs> yes, indeed. So. Yes, indeed. David, welcome back. Yep. Where have you been? Uh, well, let's see. You were on hiatus um, uh, before I was. So we were on uh, Nathan and I and the inimitable Matthew Block. No, Correct. it was you and Michael and Matthew Block. I, I was yeah, okay. Nathan okay. Well, we'll, the one we'll who cut took that the, out because I that, can't remember. That's what that was, was weird, right? Because like Nathan was on sabbatical for a year. And just when he came back, you and I went on sabbatical, and I think yeah, the idea I, I was, was on the show was going to continue. Months. Do you want to take another <laughs> swing at that? No, yeah. no, that's fine. I think uh, I think it'll be good for the listeners to hear us flounder after <laughs> yes. having been on the air for so long. As we return, yeah. Wait, who are but, you? But no, who David, am I? I? What are we doing? I, I, I went on hiatus in November 2020, and then I was uh, ready and raring to get back on the mic in August 2021, and then we didn't get back on the mic. I had forgotten until this very moment that, in fact, we have not, the three of us have not recorded together since October 2020, which is just, that's insane. Yeah. It really is. It really is. So yep. uh, if this comeback seems a little bit rough sounding listeners, it's because it is. And, and we're, we're planning on doing these regularly, maybe not every week, because David and I both have jobs that take up quite a bit more mental energy and time than our previous professorial jobs David, do you want to explain where you are and what you're doing? Yeah, I'm. I am at the Westminster School at Oak Mountain, which is a uh, private classical Christian school in uh, the Greater Birmingham, Alabama area. So between uh, spring of 21 and now, uh, we uh, we the Grubbs family. Uh, Katie Grubbs and all the little all the little grubbages uh, were transplanted from Texas to Alabama, which is where I'm originally from. And 
uh, I worked the first year of this job that I'm at now and was just so swamped and overwhelmed with the transition of life into a new town, new school, transitioning from higher education to secondary education. Um, I just kept thinking maybe this next month that it will be better and I can dip back into recording, but uh, just it took me a year to find balance. But Something to so consider to if you're back. thinking of going into secondary ed. <laughs> well, but you're know. happy there, right, David? Well, I am. Uh, it's literally the first time I've ever been in high school, you know? Oh, that's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah We have a number of homeschoolers at the school I work at. And I think, how, what made you decide to go into <laughs> go into public education? Because <laughs> I'm also teaching... Um, I'm also teaching at a high school. It's a it's a classical charter school in Atlanta. I am prohibited by my contract from saying publicly what school that is, but I'm sure if you were interested in finding out, it would not be too difficult to to look us up. Right. But I'm so actually listener, teaching just, just Western get rid, civilization. Just get... I'm I'm not even teaching English. So um, in addition to you know having to make my way back into education and learning how to teach ninth and 10th graders, I also had to teach myself the history of Western civilization, which I kind of knew maybe 30% of. <laughs> awesome. But now nice, I know everything nice. there is to know about it, and I'm good to go. Sweet. <laughs> right on. You are at a public charter, correct? That is correct. Yes. Um, and, I, and I'm at a private Christian church school. So, But both, of our, both are um, in that kind of broad movement of classical education. So re really, that was for me, that was kind of the thread that I followed. Um, you know, yeah. all, all I, of I our listeners listen should know, all of our listeners should know that, that, that the sorts of things that classical educators love is, you know, a Christian humanist jam. And it was the sort of thing that I, I loved teaching at the college level. Um, HBU had given me the chance to teach in their dual credit program, so I'd actually gotten a chance to log some class hours with uh, middle schoolers, actually. And also many of my students in uh, the graduate program that I was involved with at Houston Baptist University, the, their Master of Liberal Arts program, uh, many of those students were faculty uh, in classical schools or had been students in classical schools and in one case was actually the head of school at a public classical charter in the greater Houston area. So uh, I, I felt like it was a, a, a parallel stream, if that makes sense. And so really the biggest transition was switching from seeing my students three days a week for a semester <laughs> to seeing them pretty much every day for a year. Uh, well, and also teaching six hours a day instead of two hours a day. Yes. <laughs> so and standing up the whole time. I, I uh, the, the first, and really we need to probably curtail this discussion. I'm sure we will eventually do an episode on teaching high school since now two out of the three of us do. And the, the third has been threatening to go teach <laughs> high school for, since I've known him. Not, not threatening saying that is my backup plan. 
if they finally wise up and throw me out of the academia world. <laughs> so uh, uh, anyway, listeners, we're glad to be back. Uh, we've been fine. I hope you haven't been worried about us or anything silly like that. But we are back and we're planning on continuing to make these. So hopefully this isn't going to be just a one off. Uh, we'll have to work with some scheduling again. Uh, working, uh, teaching six hours a day is very different than teaching two hours a day. Uh, you really don't realize how good you have it as a professor. Uh, Nathan, I think you have an announcement to make. Yes, indeed. If listeners are interested, and I hope that you are, um, I will be joining uh, Trip Fuller at his 40th birthday bash theology beer camp uh, in October. It'll be October uh, 14th through 16th in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, you can go to theologybeercamp.com. No, www.theologybeer.camp, because Trip loves the innovative URLs. Um, when you sign up, if you use the discount code HUMANIST in all capital letters, uh, you will get a $50 discount off the ticket, which includes all of the events for the weekend, all the beer that you can drink. Uh, I'll go ahead and say for the sake of my uh, Emmanuel College folks, I partake of the theology, but never of the beer. And um, yeah, so uh, you know, if you go to that website, enter the discount code HUMANIST, you get $50 off your ticket. Uh, and also, I mean... Uh, yeah, Trip told me I could say this. There is a kind of uh, unofficial uh, running contest among all of the podcasters who are going to be there. There's going to be podcasters uh, from me all the way left. And uh, <laughs> okay, that didn't land. That's all right. But um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, if we get a lot of Christian humanists there, uh, then we get bragging rights. And I love bragging rights. So uh, theologybeer.camp. And uh, discount code HUMANIST. You can meet Nathan at the Theology Beer Camp. You can meet me at the Catholic Imagination Conference, which is being held at the University of Dallas, September 30th and October 1st. I will be speaking there about translation because of my translation of Gabriel Marcel's Thirst. I think that might have come out after I went on hiatus on this podcast, so I probably haven't talked about it yet. Um, I translated a Gabriel Marcel play. It's out now from Clooney Media, and I'm speaking about it at this conference. Uh, there are lots and lots and lots of much more famous Catholic intellectuals than me. James Matthew Wilson will be there, Abigail Favale, Jessica Houghton Wilson, who is not Catholic, but is organizing this whole thing. And those are just the people I've talked to on Christian Humanist Profiles. There's a bunch of people there. It'll be a good time. I hope you can make your way to University of Dallas for the Catholic Imagination Conference. You guys are coming to that, right? Where is it again? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. Is that like Dallas, Texas? <laughs> it is. It's like Dallas, Texas. Uh, if I were still in Houston, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. But I That's will cool, be there. Though. So if any, of our, if any of our listeners find themselves there, please come to my panel, which I think is Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. Do you know if it'll be recorded? I have no idea. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, if that's, if that's recorded, we really need to get that up on the uh, website. That'd be very cool. I, uh, You know, I'll ask uh, Jessica Hooten-Wilson about that and see if they're planning oh, on recording oh, anything. Oh, Jessica, I see. I see. Just, just first naming the celebrities now. I, I mean, she was on profile. She asked <laughs> me to do this, <laughs> to do this uh, conference. Okay, okay. I guess I guess that's cool. You've really embarrassed me, Grubs. <laughs> okay.
10 minutes Sorry. in, let's actually get to our uh, our topic. We are talking today, um, appropriately enough, about a, a radio drama episode called The Sabbatical, because we're coming back from our sabbatical. Uh, this drama is from the 1970s. We've, we've done one other radio drama episode of this podcast. We, we talked about uh, Donovan's Brain, which is a kind of classic Orson Welles drama from the Golden Age of radio drama. This comes from the 70s, which uh, I like to call the Silver Age of radio drama. And it comes from a, a program called Sears Radio Theater. Nathan, what was Sears Radio Theater? Sears Radio Theater is an anthology uh, series. Uh, it ran uh, for the run of 1979, then it was acquired by uh, Mutual, at which point it became uh, Mutual uh, Radio Theater. And it ran until about December 1981. Uh, so, you know, a good three-year run. And, and from what I read up on it, I mean, it seems to have been a program that ran, you know, multiple nights a week. Uh, one night would have been Mystery Night, and that would have been the night that the sabbatical would have featured, hosted by Vincent Price. You also had Comedy Night, hosted by uh, Andy Griffith, and Western Night, uh, hosted by, I should have written it down. Lauren Green. Thank you. I'm like, I, I can see him on Bonanza. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, what's interesting is, you know, the uh, Golden Age, most of what I read agrees that the Golden Age runs from, you know, roughly the 1920s 1930s when families start gathering around the radio uh to listen to radio programs up to the point where they start gathering around the television to watch television programs at which point most uh most of what i read again uh refers to as the silver age now when the silver age ends uh there's some dispute some subdivide it and say that sometime in the 1960s a third age uh, emerged in there, but just about everyone agrees that this this age, whether it's an age or two ages, ends roughly the time that uh, FM radio becomes ascendant, uh, and you know AM radio, because of the demise of the fairness doctrine, becomes the domain of talk radio mainly, uh, sports talk and political talk. And Another most thing of the Rush music, Limbaugh ruins. Yeah, <laughs> and most of the music goes over to uh, FM radio. Uh, let me see what else I wrote down here, and, and listeners do forgive, because as Michael said, we're getting back into this. The big shift there um, from the golden age into whatever we want to call it during the television age uh, is that because families are not as often gathering around the radio, uh, you really get a shift of emphasis from family-oriented programming on radio drama uh, to a more... Uh, dramatic serial uh, or dramatic anthology in the case of Sears Radio Theater feel so that it's targeted uh, much less towards children, mu much more towards adults, which is not to say that it becomes pornographic or anything like that, but it is to say that we do get, you know, the kind of psychological play that we get here that wouldn't necessarily play as well uh, in children's media. So, well, Mike, it's, it's almost I, I, impossible for me to imagine the sabbatical airing in the 1930s or 40s or 50s. It, it's just, it's too different of a, of an approach to radio drama. It's, it, it's much more like a, like a play that's been putting, that's being put on on the air than like something, um, something meant for entertainment. Right, right, right. And, uh, and, you know, Michael, I'll, I'll let you supplement what I just said because I, uh, my knowledge of the eras of radio came in the days before we started recording when I saw your question set. <laughs> sure, sure. So um, 
the the 70s you do get a revival and and sears radio theater mutual radio theater i always think of it as sears but it, it it's mutual radio theater for as long as it's sears um is one part of that the big part though is a program called cbs radio mystery theater there are several thousand episodes of that series i'm not sure anybody has actually listened to all of them eg marshall hosted it it ran every night on um on cbs radio for i think 10 years it was it was for a good long time and you know that those episodes are all kind of broadly mysteries but sometimes they're detective stories sometimes they're supernatural sometimes they're adaptations of poe or arthur conan doyle or whoever um and sometimes they're original uh original plays some of them are very very good some of them are very very bad and most of them are you know fair to middling right like 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 you would expect with something that had that many iterations. The other, the other um, Silver Age drama that I think does some really interesting things is a program called Zero Hour. Now, Zero Hour ran for, I think, two seasons, but the first season would tell a single story over the course of an entire week's worth of shows. So they would have five 30-minute shows that would tell a, a kind of sequential story. And they ended up moving away from that format because as you might imagine in 1973, it was, most people were probably not listening to the radio every night, right? Like it, it, it wouldn't be something that you could count on people listening listening to. And if you missed a day, you might not be able to follow the story. But um, if you can find recordings of those stories, which are, are widely available online, it's really worth listening to. Um, Rod Serling is the host. He doesn't do much besides introduce it, but it, it does have a kind of Twilight Zone feel. And all three of these, Sears Radio Theater, CBS Radio Mystery, and um, and The Zero Hour, they're all darker and grittier than really even the darkest and grittiest things you were going to hear during the golden age. I like them better um, for reasons that Nathan says. I think I think they are more pitched at adults than uh, than the earlier radio drama was. And, and that's not to put down the earlier stuff, some of which is is very good and, and some of the horror is very scary. But uh, I, I really love uh, these 70s shows. And whenever they come up on my various old time radio podcast feeds, I always keep them and listen to them no matter how many other podcasts I have to listen to because uh, I, I just I just find it to be a fascinating use of the medium. Had either of you ever encountered 1970s radio drama before? Nope. Yes. What did you heard, David? Oh, I'd heard some episodes of CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Um, I poke around on uh, particularly archive.org's um, OTR archives just to kind of see what see what's there see what's around um so yeah I, i'd heard i'd heard some episodes of that before um across the pond uh the bbc uh i think is pretty much kept up audio drama correct pretty pretty much unbroken since the earliest days yes that's that's of, accurate they they for whatever reason they never they never stopped doing it and i don't know what the difference between the u.s and the uk is in that sense Mm -hmm. Well, probably the fact that they have government-sponsored government media as opposed to the constant need to find a – see the, the Sears <laughs> radio theater and then it becomes the, the mutual radio theater. Um, there, there's always this uh, sponsorship relationship that you see between 
shows, and and that's that's from the very earliest days of 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 radio drama. I'm thinking of all those episodes of The Shadow that are sponsored by Blue Coal, <laughs> which you need to <laughs> or, stock uh, up for this cold winter. Is it Lights Out that's sponsored by Lipton Lipton Cup of Soup? Uh, I think some of it, yeah, and uh, yeah. So the, listening to those commercials, I think, is half the fun of the OTR. Um, when you can find the '70s ones with commercials too, and the '70s commercials are wild. Yeah. I, now, do we want to moot um, Adventures in Odyssey as the Bronze Age of radio theater? Yeah, I mean, there are various attempts throughout the 80s and 90s. NPR, every few years, tries to introduce a new um, a new radio drama. Like, it, it's something that happens, but it doesn't, other than Adventures in Odyssey, which is a very odd choice, or a very odd, yeah, choice is not really the word I was looking for there. It's a, it's a very odd uh, outlier. Um, it doesn't really catch on again until you get podcasts, and now there are a number of pretty good radio yeah. drama podcast. I mean, the problem is funding. Yes. Um, right. I mean, you, you're not going to get as good of actors as you could have gotten in the, in the golden age in the seventies or today. Although I, there's a show I like very much called the truth. Um, that I, the actors on that are pretty good. They, I think they have a troop of people who do it. Um, and, and, and those, those, those shows are good and, and they're much more like the seventies ones than the fifties ones for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything a, to say about Adventures in Odyssey? I never really listened to that program. We were avid listeners. Uh, they actually had some some professional talent on there. Uh, the gentleman who for years played the um, sort of the the old man, uh, Mister Whitaker character on Adventures in Odyssey was, uh, if I remember rightly, he was he was Otis the drunk on the Andy, on the Andy Griffith show. And that there were a few others that were in that kind of earliest stable of Adventures in Odyssey voice actors who who you you would find on IMDb in in other projects as well. Um, but uh, that that was kind of a, a, an inter, an interesting time in the history of uh, what I would call evangelical media when there's enough enough market enough. Um, and enough interest for uh, an alternative uh, stream of entertainment to to develop and and flourish in that genre. Um, they're they they do mysteries. They do you know sort of most most of it is sort of children's. Uh, Sort of a there's a problem in the episode, and over the course of the episode, the problem gets solved. But there's also kind of weird time travel episodes, and uh, it, it kind of goes all over the place. There's one that's a lot like the Prisoner of Zinda. There's one where they solve a a forty year old mystery, and it, it's yeah, it's 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 pretty cool stuff. But it was Adventures in Odyssey where I learned about things like Foley work and um, yeah, all, all of those all of those parts of of audio drama that were forged in these earlier eras that continued um so i i I guess i got a taste for it then but didn't realize until later what it was i was learning to get a taste from for so i mean um all this stuff from the 70s anything that's remaining is going to be 
largely available on the internet, archive.org, as David said. So I do encourage people to go listen. If you are diving into Sears Radio Theater, I would recommend not listening to the Andy Griffith comedy episodes. I've never heard one that I enjoyed. But the, the mystery ones are great. The The Thursday episodes were Cecily Tyson talking about love, hate, and related things. That's her phrase, which I've always loved. Those are really good. If you like Westerns, the Lauren Green ones are good. Fridays are Adventure with Richard Widmark and then um, Leonard Nimoy in later seasons hosts sci-fi episodes. And again, your tolerance for those genres is going to determine how much you enjoy those. But I, I, I do highly recommend the mystery and the, the Cecily Tyson ones. They're, they're just kind of generic dramas, um, but they're, they're, they're largely pretty good. Uh, and if you haven't listened to the sabbatical, as I suspect you probably haven't, I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to go listen to that now. It'll take you about 45 minutes, but we're going to spoil the story. And that story, the story relies so much on suspense that if you know what's coming, I don't know that you're going to enjoy it as much. So do pause this. Um, our The show notes for this episode at christianhumanist.org will have a link to the, uh, to the, the episode of Sears Radio Theater. I, I would really highly encourage you to go listen to that now before we keep talking. No, really, and, do it. And now uh, let's keep talking. We'll go ahead and spoil it right away. David, how would you describe the plot of this episode in a few sentences? A professor nearing the uh, end of his career in, at the same institution for decades, respected, uh, applies for a visiting lectureship in Europe uh, for uh, in, in hopes of being able to go away for his sabbatical from his own uh, from his own institution but being uprooted from that place uh, where he's employed somehow having having been uprooted from that life and moved to another place in another job, um, leads him to become unmoored in other ways, so that by the end of the episode, uh, he seems to have had a number of uh, a number of serious uh, just just breaks in his personality um, as he becomes unmoored in a lot of really disconcerting ways impossible to quantify right and actually really hard to qualify as well if you were trying to explain what had happened to him it's it's not an easy thing to do mm -hmm. although i imagine a certain kind of listener would probably slap three or four easy psychology labels on it and have done with it um but honestly yeah, that's we're not, not gonna near, do that that's not nearly as fun as actually attending to the story Mel melville who is the um the scholar, that's his first name. I cannot, for the life of me, remember what his last name is. Melville Pole. <laughs> he, um, he explicitly rejects any kind of psychological reading of his condition. So we will also explicitly reject any kind of psychological reading of his condition. Kind of. Well, we'll talk more about that as we get on with the episode. But he doesn't precisely reject the psychology. It's just his the understanding of psychology that emerges is not like any kind of psychology I've ever studied. Fair enough. Uh, David, how would you describe the tone of the episode? Which, I, I mean, the plot is relatively simple. The tone, this this is really a tone piece, I think. Ominous, uh, I think, is is one one way that you would call it. But it's it's not a um, 
the monster is going to leap out from the shadows and eat you kind of ominous. Uh, it's the the sense of, of fear and tension that you have for someone else that you care about when they begin to show signs of something inner that is uh, that is dangerous for them. You know, when you start to see... Um, uh, you know, signs of, of mental or uh, emotional imbalance or stress or whatever that you would call it. Um, that That's sort of how I felt. Uh, it's not exactly the kind of... Uh, it's not the same kind of build of tension and suspense that you have in uh, a story in which there's some kind of physical danger or supernatural danger. Uh that's what I'm. More, that's what I'm more used to. Yeah. Well, and, and the fact that they put it on Mystery Night and they have Vincent Price narrating it, right? Like yeah. this would have fit in very, very well on the Cecily Tyson Night, the love, hate, and related things, the kind of generic drama night. But they they didn't do that. Instead, they put it on this this night when they have things like a Ouija board that is predicting murders and a ham radio that can talk with the dead. These are, these are two other episodes of, so you see how seventies it is. They put it on that night and it's narrated by Vincent price as if it were Cthulhu coming after yeah. the professor. I thought yes. that's just a fascinating decision. It, it turns this, uh, if it had been left without soundtrack, without Vincent price, without preamble, and you just had a character, like this one going through those exact same experiences in you know in a film if this was like a secondary character that you encountered along the way the story would be about how you know whatever other character we're following has an elderly friend or relative who is uh having difficulty dealing with encroaching senility or something like that like that's 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 what it would be but because this is our hero and because it's attended by Vincent Price, which leads me to expect spooky things and ominous music and all the rest of it, uh, all of those, um, all of those scenes of, of, of self doubt, of anxiety, all of those moments get a weight to them that they might not otherwise have if this was just, an elderly side character in someone else's story. Nathan, would you add anything about the tone? You do. I hope everybody can hear the, the peeling thunder uh, outside my window. <laughs> it's very appropriate for this episode. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. About the only thing I'd add about the tone is that, uh, you know, you mentioned the music in general. I mean, what the music is, is a woodwind ensemble playing blue Danube in 17 different keys. Uh-huh. And the first time I listened to it, it just kind of was an irritant to me. Uh, but then I, it, it kind of occurred to me that uh, what I'm supposed to be doing with that music is, I mean, it, it follows uh, Melville Polly's mental state, right? I mean, you know, the first time you hear it, it's in the key that we're all accustomed to from Looney Tunes cartoons. Uh, but by the end of the episode, you know, I mean, it, it's in these weird keys, uh, you know, that that reflect his, his deteriorating mental state um i'll also say that i mean i i and it might just be because of my you know um 
vices. I'll just say that generally. Uh, but I mean, I, I found the Vincent Price interludes hilarious, uh, oh, yeah, just because they, they, they match so poorly with <laughs> the subject matter. Yeah, he, you know, Vincent Price's range as a narrator is fairly limited. Is that is that a fair statement? <laughs> and, I don't know. For those so. of us who first came to him through the bridge of Michael Jackson's thriller, it can sometimes be hard to take things he says seriously. Yes. I, yeah, he had inhabited the space of camp for such a long time, uh, up to Thriller, and cer- certainly by the time he was coming on as the narrator for this particular strand of of the Sears Radio Theater, uh, he wouldn't he would have been seen as the guy who's in the guy who's always in a spooky movie, and half of those spooky movies are sort of self-consciously corny and he's just chewing the scenery though he was in a good chunk of stuff especially through the 70s that we would now kind of call exploitation horror yeah the roger corman movies well even beyond that stuff um so so there 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 were some there were some there's some vincent price price stuff that would um be gorier right not 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 necessarily what we would call uh, what we would call cheesy, but still, I mean, yeah, I think I think camp is kind of what he's associated with. I, I I wondered. I mean, I don't know what the conditions are of recording Silver Age radio like this. Was he even physically present to know what the story was that he was narrating? Oh, who knows? Yeah, I I don't know. I it's hard to imagine that they called him in every week to do a different episode. I suspect. They got came to him, and he recorded intros to, and and commentary for the whole season's worth of episodes in an afternoon. You know, because I mean, yeah, it 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 can't add up to five minutes an episode. But it is it's so intrusive that I can definitely see how Nathan <laughs> would find it funny. You know, um, in the Ham Radio episode, the main character's nickname is Big Ham. And there, there, there might be nothing in the world funnier than hearing Vincent Price enunciate Big Ham. I can't do I can't do his That's voice. Wonderful. But... Big Ham. <laughs> uh, is it like it's an industry? Yeah. <laughs> the the pork industry. Yes. Well, uh, besides horror, and I'm I'm going to use the term horror, even though I'm not sure it's exactly what the sabbatical is going for, but I'm going to go ahead and call it horror. But besides horror, it clearly belongs to the genre of academic drama. And Nathan, in our pre-planning, you expressed some annoyance with that genre in general in this episode in particular. So here's your chance to go off on academic drama. So first of all, I just want to note just how K-12 Michael has gotten in, in a scant year. Uh, he doesn't call it pre-game. He doesn't call it pre-show. He calls it pre-planning. Oh, my uh, God. I didn't those, even realize that <laughs> I did it. Those, those of you oh, with K-12 yeah. teachers in your lives will get that. I have a lesson plan for this episode. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Afterwards, we'll have to do our post-planning. Oh, that's funny. Um so first of all, academic drama, I don't have any particular problem with. I haven't read a whole lot of it. I know some people have, have really just kind of made a, a hobby of it, of, of taking in, you know, uh, Dear Committee and, you know, all of the various academic novels. Uh, I've read a, a handful and, you know, like any genre, I mean, it's a mixed bag. 
Um, my problem with this episode in particular, that I can talk about a little bit, and it has something to do with, um, or I, I should say it runs parallel with uh, Danny Anderson's disdain for the po- poor, lonely rock star rock song. Uh, if you ever get Danny Anderson monologuing on, uh, you know, Bob Seger's Turn the Page or any of those, uh, what, Bon Jovi's Wanted Dead or Alive, uh, these songs about, you know, how lonely it is making, you know, more money in a night of playing guitar than I make in three years teaching, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, how rough they've got it and so on and so forth. Danny Anderson, I mean, uh, he can get into a rant on that that is just glorious to hear. And that's the kind of thing that was running through my mind here. And I, and I think it's a function of the fact that I came up in the academic world uh, in the publisher parish adjunctification of higher ed era. And so yeah. if you get a professorship, you have survivor's guilt because you so you know so many people who didn't. So when Vincent Price wants me to be uh, horrified by the fact that, you know, this guy who is making enough money to have three kids, his wife lives at home, he's got a piano in the parlor, and he can go off, you know, to Europe for a year on government money, and he gets the yips, and I, you know, <laughs> I'm just thinking, okay, I mean... I'm really trying to be sympathetic here. I'm really trying to be, be sympathetic here. Um, so I mean, yeah, I you know, would certainly trade for his life. I, ha- I have oh, to say, oh, yeah, like, I, like yesterday, because his his classrooms, his lecture halls are described as full of adoring students. Like people can't get enough of this guy. He gets up at nine o'clock in the morning, fiddles around on the piano, then walks to work gives these lectures to his adoring throng of undergraduates and then walks home at four o'clock to his wife, who no doubt has a martini waiting for him. Sounds all right. He has written many books. He has won many awards. Yeah. Uh, Honestly, if he, if he wasn't elderly, I don't think it would be as effective on me as it, as it is. If, if, if you made this guy my age or younger, you know, if he was like, you know, the, the, the conference rock star and you you made this story. I would be like, nah, (laughs) but the, the fact, the fact that he's, you know, kind of reaching the, the end of that, uh, of that trajectory. That's, that's the thing that, that I think. Well, he belongs to to that post-war era of the english professor right he's lionel oh, absolutely. trilling absolutely and, yeah, and yeah. like that's a that's a world i long for you know like when i went into academia <laughs> that is what i wanted for myself and it just doesn't exist anymore if it ever did i mean it must have on some level existed so like there is some wish fulfillment in listening to this and there is a necessary suspension of disbelief you have to you have to accept that this is the life that he has gotten and he's still not satisfied. And and oh, sure, I, sure. I grant and, and, you that it's difficult to accept that because <laughs> the the material conditions of being an English professor in 2022 are so, so much less pleasant. Yes, indeed. And, and I will say that, I mean, if we can set those things to the side, it is a really nice psychological allegory. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to trash the entire episode. Uh, but again, the combination of Vincent Price trying to turn it into a horror story, and then the academic life—he calls it a fate worse than death. Doesn't a he? fate worse than death, <laughs> having to go to your lectures and occasionally get the yips. I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm like, you, you know, Vincent, Polly. 
I, I, I can think of, uh, of of several things between death and that. Yeah, I was about to say, it turns out death is no big. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd trade it. Maybe I'm suicidal. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> he has no desire to fall. None whatsoever. He has no desire to fall? You remember that? But he's he's like on the side yeah. of the cliff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In, Go ahead, uh, David. Yeah, she. Uh, there's this uh, a, a moment where he's apparently getting too close to the side of this precipice that you just sort of have to imagine. And his wife is very, very upset about this. And, and he's talking about feeling, you know, slightly dizzy. And she's uh, apparently seeing him teeter and she grabs him and pulls him back. And what he says to her angrily is not, I wasn't going to fall or I was in no injury, no danger of falling or I was, I, I, I hadn't lost my balance. I was perfectly steady. It was, I have no desire to fall. Right. But like, right. I think that is the perfect line for that situation. And yes. it actually ties in very well to the next question. Yeah. I don't know if you were doing that on purpose. No, but I'm just saying like, it's, it's things like that, that I think elevate this beyond, you know, Oh, Oh, you know, poor tweed baby has anxieties. He, he could have any job, right? And, and the, the kind of cliched thing to do with this would be to make him an advertising executive. You know, it, it, uh-huh. they, they could have right, done this right. as, a, as a Mad Men arc. But instead, they gave him this, this English, possession, uh, English professor position, and it, it, I think, adds a layer of interest for people like us. Mm-hmm. Right. And once again, I want to emphasize that, you know, the the psychological allegory, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, is still very effective. Uh, it's just such an alien world on those material condition levels that Michael was talking about that, uh, I mean, it, it, it's hard. It, it takes work to get into this drama if you live in that world, you know, 43 years later. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You, yeah. I would... Uh, I would trade any five minutes of my um, of my academic career for any five minutes of Melville Polly. That's that's for sure, including the five <laughs> minutes where he's teetering on the cliff in Vienna. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. At I least mean, you can go it, get some Hungarian food afterwards, right? Right. It seems it's to like, eat the like Hungarian restaurant Vienna, every day. Interesting. <laughs> now that 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 is a funny detail that his wife has to say, "Oh, please, not the Hungarian place again." <laughs> Maybe. Oh my gosh, it just occurred to me that the real problem here is he's allergic to paprika. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, um, the scene with him teetering on the cliff, along with a lot of other stuff, owes a pretty clear debt to what uh, we might call mid-century popular existentialism. Nathan, what ideas from Heidegger or Sartre or Camus or whoever else have trickled down into this episode? I see this as largely a, a Sartrean allegory with a strong Freudian twist. Uh, so, I mean, the tension in the life of Melville Pauly uh, is that he has, in Sartre's terms, in bad faith, identified his being uh, with the professorship. So, for Sartre, human existence, and I, I forget if he's got his own fancy term like Heidegger does, um, is radically and pervasively free. Uh, So we are ultimately responsible uh, for every moment, every choice, uh, everything 
uh, every response that we have to anything that happens in our world. What Polly has done as it emerges here is he has so identified himself with his work that there are a couple of moments where you have a kind of Freudian ritual that leads into uh, a mental breakdown. And both of them have to do with uh, packing up his books and his papers uh, to travel across the Atlantic, uh, first to go to uh, Vienna and then to come back to Vienna at the end. And hopefully, listeners, you went and listened to it, so I didn't just spoil that. Uh, but in both of those cases, when the casket shuts, and I use that, uh, you know, very intentionally because it's a, you know, it's a symbol that I think Freud would recognize, uh, when the casket shuts and the books and the papers and all of the effects of the professorship, uh, are now no longer part of his world, uh, that's when his psychological problems arise. That's when they become, uh, really terrifying and that's, you know, uh, when his wife, you know, among other people, you know, start to notice it. Now, on the, on the Heidegger side, uh, one of the things that I, I really noticed here uh, is that, you know, that, that scene that uh, David talked about earlier, uh, you know, Heidegger has a notion that, you know, human existence is a temporal existence. And the character of that temporality uh, is that every moment has an openness to it. Uh, it is not determined. And, you know, in some sense, to a greater or lesser extent, and I actually might be mixing some stoicism in here with Heidegger, so do forgive those of you out here, out there who have read Heidegger more recently than I have. Uh, but I think some, Heidegger has a fair bit of stoicism to begin with. Okay, fair enough. So, I mean, to some extent, whether in the ways that you react to the ways that you're projected onto the world or in the ways that you act in the world, uh, you know, those moments are not yet filled. You fill them. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, that idea that he had no desire uh, to fall, uh, I mean, he gives the lie to that by continuing to travel towards the edge. Uh, so, I mean, you know, his desire is not in any kind of disembodied will, but it is in his body. His body wills to take him towards that edge. His body wills when they are traveling across the Atlantic uh, to go to the prow of the ship. Uh, and to stare into the darkness. And, and that darkness is where I'm going to kind of end uh, my, my points here, is that uh, the figure of the ship traveling on a cloudy night uh, is one that recurs in this drama. And, you know, his terror uh, at the ship traveling at night is that there are no visible stars, there is no visible moon, and so therefore it is plowing ahead at the speed of steam uh, with no way of knowing uh, which direction they are traveling. And it's pretty clear that, I mean, you know, that is a, a symbolic uh, counterpart to uh, what he experiences his life doing. When he goes uh, to Vienna, uh, he is traveling into unknown psychological territory uh, with no way of knowing that he is going to wander off, you know, almost off the cliff, with no way of knowing that he is going to start uh, accosting strangers in a park and getting arrested uh, with no way of knowing that, you know, by his wife's machinations that I don't think he's ever aware of. I don't think there's any hint that he becomes aware of her plot to get him back to the States. Uh, he has to be removed from that context. Uh, and, you know, and then of course, you know, as, as Vincent Price tells us in his spooky thriller voice at the end, he, he, the, the terror never leaves him, not until the day he dies. Uh, so, 
<laughs> but know, that would be a relief, right? The day he dies, because this is worse than death. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> the upgrade. It's a happy I, ending. I, I still feel like there's a lot of territory between, uh, you know, beloved literature lecturer and death, but that that could just be me. Uh, Michael, I bet you know. Uh, you and I have read some uh, Heidegger together, so I mean, what other uh, Heideggerian or Sartrean bits would you want to add to that? I don't know if this is specifically an existentialist idea, but I think there's a sense here in which Melville Polly is a total mystery to himself. Like he, he, what he realizes or almost realizes or ought to realize is that he doesn't know who he is. And so he stands on the side of this cliff and he realizes, this is what Kierkegaard calls the dizziness of freedom. He realizes that he could jump and that something deep in him might actually want to jump that's kind of beyond his conscious will. And I, I think there you are getting into the the more Freudian reading of that. I'm sure Sartre would hate that I've, I've just connected, uh, <laughs> connected him to Freud because he specifically denies that there even is an unconscious. Right, but you get this sense that... Well, but in this story, there definitely is an unconscious. Oh, absolutely. You get the sense that he is, like, infinitely rich, infinitely deep, and and he has lived so comfortably for so long that he has lost touch with the, 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 the darkest parts of himself. It's like, it's like Nietzsche is deep in the heart of Melville Pauly, and he has no idea. David, you know existentialism less well than we do, I know, but do, do, <laughs> do you have anything to do you have anything to add to that? So some things that I was thinking as as you were talking, Nathan, uh, you were talking about the the images of venturing out into the night with the starless sky, um, moving into an unknown space and how he moves to this unknown space. There's also, I think, as much of an emphasis on the importance of the known space that uh, his wife describes his weird, mysterious, uh, I would say probably complex problems. She she sort of uh, struggles to sum it up, but she ends up summing it up as homesickness. Right, right. So that there's this sense that within his sphere, you know, when he's, you know, in the place where he knows the stars and their motions, and he moves in those rhythms, those accust, those same accustomed rhythms with those same that that a circle of accustomed friends, um, those accustomed circuits of time, uh, that he is content happy confident um but maybe that yeah he has hidden depths that are mysterious to him but he's also kind of known as as an individual who in his in his craft he's he's presented as a deep thinker an insightful person um and there's something about the way that you pull maybe anybody, even the most insightful and best adjusted, pull them out of that world, uh, that world that they know. And to what extent is there, is there stability? Does it come from the ordinary 
the ordinary rhythm of life continuing to tune them. So you've got that that recurrent anxiety that he has over whether the piano will stay in tune. Right? The piano at home or the piano in the place that he's at. This so so the idea that there's this instrument that requires constant attention, constant tweaking in order to keep it calibrated in order to play well, to, to, to play its melody rightly. And then over the course of the episode, the melody of his life, the Blue Danube, keeps going wrong in weird ways, right? Mm. So that uh, I, I think maybe it's it's kind of a, a counterpoint to, yes, the, the existentialism and the unknown and the, the individual as a mystery to themselves, but also to what extent is uh, a sense of normalcy actually good and healthy for tuning us, right? Um, not necessarily masking his truth from himself, but helping him to helping him to be a true to himself, healthy person. Um, to what extent did that? Did he need those stars and those rhythms and that tuning in order to stay in that place? So let me ask you this, David. I mean, what do you make then of the final uh, epilogue where, you know, even when he returns to the Midwest, uh, the dread and the terror never go away? Because it seems like, you know, if, if normalcy were something that could stabilize this kind of, you know, vertigo at radical freedom then a return to the familiar and the routine and the, and, you know, uh, to vocation, uh, would have done something, uh, to stabilize what had become destabilized. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've got this hint that he has this fear. Well, not hint. You have Vincent Price telling us that <laughs> he has this fear for the rest of his life, even to the moment he dies. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I don't see any indication in the denouement that he wanders around in parks talking to strangers, you know, finds himself suddenly in insane asylums with his wife having to pick him up. Um, oh, because I, I kind of assumed that when he said that at the end, that, I mean, he would have these episodes for the rest of his life. Okay, okay. See, uh, when I when I heard it, I assumed that it meant for the rest of his life the – the worry that he might find himself in that place again never went away. Oh, that make that does make more sense. Cause I mean, I, I guess he also says that his colleagues talked about it for a little while, but then they just kind of got used to it and stopped talking about it. Yeah. And, 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 and probably like if you, if, I just feel like once he's been knocked that far out of tune, yeah, you can never get totally back in. It, it, it's, he's it's an, yeah, it's an estrangement from a normalcy. Um, and we've, I mean, you know, the, you see that in life where when someone is, you know, sort of raised in a particular, in a particular, in a particular kind of normalcy, that sh- shifting that, relocating them um, can can be very traumatic, sometimes even in ways that aren't, um, that might seem disproportionate or not, or not necessarily make sense to, to someone else. Um, you know, I, I know my children thrive on normalcy. They, they thrive on, on the routine. They want to know if something's going to be regular and, uh, 
something that I didn't know <laughs> was a tradition that they counted on uh, can make them distressed when it changes. And I didn't even know that was a thing, you know. Uh, so I don't know. He he gets knocked out of tune, and then forever he has the fear of of that coming back. Uh, he he suddenly becomes aware of his fragility. I think. At least that that's that's what I got. I only listened to it a couple of times. The first time, uh, I kept getting interrupted, and so I kept thinking that maybe I hadn't queued it up, and I just sort of missed the scene where the monster jumped out. So I made myself listen to it again <laughs> straight, and like, nope, nope, still no monster. Nope. Uh, w- well, when I played this episode for Victoria, she hated it. <laughs> And she said, I see why you like it. It's you. And I, I had assumed, I must say, that Melville's trouble was more or less a universal trouble, at least in the modern world. David, was I way off? Is this just like my personal psychological problem? Uh, I mean, I can't I can't speak to that. That's between you and your wife and or therapist. Um, or, you know, priest. But for me... Uh, I was listening to it and thinking, man, that feels kind of like stuff that I've experienced. Not to that degree, but there have definitely been times in my career where some change in the career, something was something was happening where things felt out of tune. Um, and my sense of myself in that role was uh, so so disturbed that I wondered whether, you know, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? Um, not quite to this extent. Uh, I didn't, you know, suddenly sort of snap to awareness in an Austrian mental hospital. Um, but I mean, over the, over the last year, um, I love my job. I love my coworkers, but even just adjusting to the teaching all day, teaching the same people for a year, I didn't realize the degree to which shifting that rhythm in my life was going to push my just physical resources in the way that it did. So that there were, there was a, a, especially last fall, um, some serious moments of uh, like, a- am I a teacher? Is this a thing that I can even do anymore? How did I do this before? You know, I, I would, you know, kind of sit there and think, I've been teaching for how long? And I, and I, and, and I, I couldn't remember how it felt to do it well. It's not exactly what this is in this episode, but as I was listening to the episode, it was chiming off of those kinds of experiences. I mean, is that the sort of thing that you're thinking of, Michael? Yeah, just this this kind of deep unease that that occasionally comes on you. He calls it terror. We can just call it unease if you don't want to go that far, if you don't want to think of it as worse than death. Because I think for most of us, (laughs) it's probably not worse than death. But it's bad, right? It's unpleasant. Like, you have no reason to feel that way, and yet you feel that way. You feel dissatisfied. You feel scared. You you feel like you don't know yourself. That I, I would yeah. think that that's universal. So so I, I got to ask Michael, why did Victoria hate it then? She felt that the 
episode did not show enough sympathy to Melville's wife. I can see that. I can see that. Uh, she said so in much more colorful language than that. Some un, un, unprintable, unairable <laughs> language. <laughs> she was really nice, mad. Nice. Like when when we got to the end of the episode and nothing happened, she was so, she was so angry about it. <laughs> <laughs> what, nice. What was what did you see as negative in the depiction of the wife? I I, I really felt for her because she's like standing on the edge of this person having this kind of catastrophic emotional fall apart. Right. I think I think zero the, ability to lay hold on it. I think her problem was that that the wife doesn't really have an existence apart from him. And I, I can understand that criticism, but also it's not the story is about his breakdown. And I, I agree his wife is in a lot of ways the more sympathetic person. Mm-hmm. Um but and see, it's in interesting because I, I thought she bore uh, a certain resemblance to, and I can't think of the character's name right now. I think it's Cora in uh, Ibsen's play A Doll's House. Huh. I was. Th- I thought you were going to say uh, Death of a Salesman, Linda. In Death oh, of a that's interesting. No, I hadn't thought about that. But I. But the, but the Ibsen connection is. I mean, she is making things happen so that at the same time she can save him, and also he isn't aware that she is saving him because psychologically he wouldn't be able to handle that. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I, I it's interesting because I, I found her an utterly sympathetic woman character. Uh, so, I mean, you know, uh, it, uh, yes, I mean, within the space of these 30 minutes, all of her scenes are with Melville Polly, but I mean, she is saving him from himself. Which, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't know if, if, you know, Manic Pixie Dream Girl applies to this character, but... <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, she's a caretaker. Right. Right? And you get the sense even even from the very beginning of it, the way that she speaks to him, the way that he relies on her, that she's been taking care of him for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in, in the sense that she doesn't have any, any life outside of him. Yeah, but he really needs her. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. Well, um, I have run out of my questions. Uh, what else would you guys add about the sabbatical? What haven't we talked about that's worth saying? David, let's start with you and then you can throw it to Nathan. I was trying to make something out of the the language thing that his his uh, first his desire to go abroad. You know, he had to apply for this on purpose, right? He and he'd been apparently been seeking it for years, and then as soon as he gets it, you get this anxiety. I wish I'd focused on my German more. And then there's the scene where he's greeting her as, you know, Frau, right? He's uh, he he starts using he, he'll tell her the German word for piano tuner, and he'll use you know German when he's addressing her. But then you have the scene of uh, which we don't see, but we're told about that he's he's been found in a park, 
speaking to people in English as if they can understand him and hearing them respond in German as if he can understand them when he can't. Um, so there's something interesting going on with language there uh, in the way that uh, understanding and being understood uh, serves as a, a, strong, uh, a strong symbol or a strong proxy for whatever this experience of estrangement is that he's having this estrangement from the setting he's in and estrangement even from himself. Uh, I, I found that pretty interesting. Um, but really, I just I just kept waiting for the shoe to drop. And then it doesn't. I think the genius of the episode is that the shoe doesn't drop, that it's all tension and no release, just like his life is all tension and no release until until the day he dies. I, I I think that's what's most remarkable about this episode. And that's what you never would have heard. At least I've never heard it on any kind of golden age drama. And and that's what makes it so much more adult, because this is just something that I think a child could not possibly understand. Whereas the monster jumping out of the closet, of course, every child understands that. Well, if the shoe had dropped, it would have been resolution. You know? Right. But he never gets it and you never do either. And that's uh, that I think is what makes it that much more disturbing to to the listener is that you don't even get the the cons- the conventional uh, the consolation of seeing the monster, if that makes sense. The shadow never actually coalesces into a form you can understand. It just looms. Nathan? Well, first of all, I, I've just got to say again that I, I've never listened to anything that more made me want to shove an oboe up somebody's nose. But <laughs> I... Uh, an oboe. And, and Nathan that, kind of wants to shove an oboe up somebody's nose. <laughs> yeah. I, whew, but, um, you know, I, I, and, and this is a, a, a fruit of pure coincidence, but when I first started listening to this, because we started talking about doing this episode back during the summer, uh, and I was teaching uh, William T. Kavanaugh's book, uh, Migrations of the Holy, which is a, a sort of theological examination of nationalism as a religion. And one of his chapters, he, he talks about uh, a sort of taxonomy of capitalist travel versus Christian travel. And he says that, you know, in, in, Christianity, and and he pretty clearly has medieval Christianity in view, Uh, you've got pilgrims and you've got monks. And pilgrims can go where they go and do what they do for the sake of their souls because there are monks there to uh, put them up and to show hospitality. And, you know, the monks, uh, you know, have their peculiar relationship to the world precisely because there are pilgrims from all over uh, stopping over at their monasteries. And he says, by by contrast, capitalist travel, uh, you know, is characterized by the migrant and the tourist. And the migrant, of course, is the one who is forced either by violence or by economic disaster or by, uh, you know, natural disaster uh, to go from one place to another, go from the familiar to the unfamiliar. Uh, but the tourist is the one who seeks out the unfamiliar out of a kind of boredom. Uh, so, you know, there's there's very little sense that, you know, uh, there's anything related to Christ going on there. But instead, it's uh, I need to get away from the job. It's a vacation. 
and he, of course he breaks down the, the etymology of vacation and whatnot. But it made me think of this because, you know, uh, this is a story of travel that does not do any redemption of souls, but actually destabilizes a soul. And, you know, like I said, I mean, you know, listening to this as I was reading that book uh, really gave me a, a peculiar um, frame inside of which to listen to it. And I think that, you know, uh, this is part of what makes this kind of story work uh, is that you've got this uh, unarticulated un uh, but always present uh, capitalist framework there uh, where, like we said before, I mean, you know, there is this uh, bad faith identification with job that's not quite the same as vocation. You've got this, you know, boredom uh, that is not the, that doesn't result in confession of sins, but it results in trying to travel to get away from the boring. And, uh, you know, I, I'm still trying to figure out how to articulate what I want to do with that theologically, but I think it's a heck of a set of questions. Well, thank you guys for uh, putting up with with this uh, radio drama. I know it's uh, not necessarily the sort of thing we normally do on the show, but it has been on my mind for a long time. So I, I'm glad for the opportunity to talk about it. And I'm glad to be back. Um, and I hope our listeners are glad that we're back. I think, didn't we discuss doing an episode every two weeks? Is that right? I can't remember. <laughs> we also have not at all discussed who's going to do the next episode. David, do you have an episode in mind? Because I do. I do as well. Well, I will let you have it, sir. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're going to read the book of Tobit. Oh, awesome. So we'll be back in either a week or two or at some point to talk about the book of Tobit. And uh, Asmodeus. <laughs> Now, yes. let's Which see. Which is the, the best devil name ever. I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to say it six times during the episode, but I'm going to start now. <laughs> let's see if I can remember how to end the show any better than I remembered how to begin the show. You can you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can visit our website at christianhumanist.org. All of our episodes have been migrated over to a new podcast server which we like much better and which there should be fewer problems with but you may run into some problems just because of the migration and in particular the links on our old episodes on the website are not going to be um active so um hmm. can they just go straight to the castos site nathan Ah uh, yes and i think that i have put links into listen to our latest which is the 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 uh pinned link in the upper left corner of christianhumanist.org if i have not i will do so before this episode goes live now that i've promised it yeah and and also i think we're all we're available on stitcher and spotify and anywhere else you uh you, you yeah, might amazon stream your podcast. I mean, yeah that this platform allows us to get into a lot more spaces when it comes to the uh, you know uh, who knew 13 years ago that podcasting would be as big as it is now but now we can get into those bigger places yeah Cool. Yeah, well, we, you know, we've been doing it longer than anybody, essentially, almost <laughs> anybody. <laughs> anyway, you can listen to our back catalog there on Castos or wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can visit our website at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, I edit these shows. I, I was trying to come up with our audio editor, and then I remembered that it's me. Uh, for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>